Thank you, Jackie. I speak in a different church virtually every week. I think this might be my favorite one of them all. Um, and um, something remarkable has happened in this country since the last time I spoke at this conference. Democratic socialism is surging in this country. Uh, three years ago, just three years ago, DSA was a sleepy little outfit that I've been speaking for for 33 years. Today, DSA is a surging force in American politics, and there are DSA events in Brooklyn and Manhattan every night of the week. Two days ago, I published a big book on democratic socialism in Europe. And right now, I'm about three-fourths finished with a big book on democratic socialism in the United States. So that's where you're catching me. <clears throat> democratic socialism is an idea with a rich history in European politics and a rather slight history in this country. Yet this idea is surging in this country today partly because we have so little of it. European social democracy has created societies in which the government pays for everybody's health care and education. In the USA, we attained only a modicum of social democratic decency through the New Deal and Great Society, and now even that is endangered. Voting rights are suppressed in black and Latinx communities. Health care depends upon what you can afford. Democratic institutions are just under assault. Racism and xenophobia are assiduously politicized. Private money dominates the political system, and nothing is done to stem severe inequalities of wealth and income. No democracy can perpetually survive gross disparities in economic and social condition. And therefore, the United States is witnessing a surge in something called democratic socialism. Social democratic standards of social decency are said to be un-American. But nearly every election is a referendum on them. And the USA has the richest cultural history of democratic socialism in the world. Americans have long debated two fundamentally different visions of what kind of country we should want to be. One is the vision of a society that provides unrestricted liberty to acquire wealth, lifts the right to property above the right to self-government, and espouses a politics of individual competition and success. The other is the vision of a realized democracy in which self-government is superior to property. No group dominates any other, and democratic checks are placed on social, political, and economic power. Both of these visions are ideal types, deeply rooted in U.S. American history. Both of them have limited and conditioned each other for two centuries. Donald Trump won the presidency by claiming that liberal government, liberal elites, and the media have betrayed the nation by coddling immigrants and denigrating the white heartland communities that made America great. He told his vaunted base that the wrong people are succeeding in American society and white Americans must reclaim their country before it is lost. Trump has changed how the Republican Party talks about Vision One giving highest priority to racism, white anxiety, xenophobia, cultural resentments, and Trump's consuming narcissism. But that 
just makes Trumpism a meaner and degraded version of Vision One, the one we've had all along in this country. The original idea of socialism goes back to the 1820s in England and France, where Charles Fourier and Robert Owen were the pioneers. The original idea was to achieve the unrealized demands of the French Revolution, which never reached the working class. Instead of pitting workers against each other, a cooperative mode of production and exchange would allow them to work for each other. Socialism was about organizing society as a cooperative community. That could mean very different things, as evidenced by the work of Pierre Joseph Proudhon, Mikhail Bakunin, Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, Ferdinand LaSalle, William Morris, Karl Kotsky, Sidney Webb, Edward Bernstein, Rosa Luxemburg, V.I. Lenin, Eugene Debs, G.D.H. Cole. This list of founders goes on. These founders blamed capitalism for all of society's ills. But religious socialists did not. So there were Christian and Jewish versions of nearly every socialist tradition. Engels and Kotsky drew from Marx's thought the principles that came to be called Orthodox Marxism, a necessary enterprise riddled with the usual problems of orthodoxies. No definition of socialism as economic collectivism or state control of the economy or any particular ownership scheme is common to the many traditions of socialist thought. Historically, Marxism played the leading role in reducing the idea of socialism to collective ownership. And Fabian socialism played the second leading role in a very different way. Marx taught that the structure of economic ownership determines the character of an entire society, and socialism is the collective ownership of the means of production, a sufficient condition for fulfilling the essential aspirations of human beings. He developed the most powerful and illuminating critique of capitalism ever conceived, inspiring numerous traditions of Marx's criticism. His focus on the factors of production and the structural capitalist tendency to generate crises of overproduction and crash made permanent contributions to modern thought. But Marx's dogmatic determinism catastrophe mentality and doctrine of proletarian dictatorship wrecked immense harm. He developed his theory during an era in which democracy was merely a form of government and thus of virtually no importance to him. His denigration of moral everything obscured his own ethical wellspring. And his fixation on collective ownership relegated anti-racism, feminism, and all other social justice causes to secondary reform movement status. Every kind of socialism retains the original idea of organizing society as a cooperative community. Yet there is no core that unites the many schools of socialism or even democratic socialism. I believe the best candidate for an essential something in democratic socialism is the ethical commitment to social justice and radical democratic community. This impulse retains the original idea in multiple forms, inspiring struggles for freedom, equality, and recognition. Fourier said that all liberal constitutions were flawed because they lifted an abstract equality of rights above the necessary means to realize these rights. The first right of every citizen is to sustainable work.
The cooperative traditions of Fourier and Owen carried well beyond their European origins, inspiring U.S. American radical Democrats and progressives to dream of a society based on cooperative ethical values. Many founders of the Republican Party identified with Fourier or Marx, linking racial slavery to capitalism. Some of them knew Marx personally. To them, European socialism was far from un-American. If the USA was to become a decent society that broke the nexus of slavery and economic domination, it had to extinguish America's original sin and prevent capital from dominating labor. Democratic socialism bears the fateful history of socialism in its self-conscious utterance in the very phrase. Most 19th century British and continental socialists believed that capitalism is antagonistic toward democracy and socialism is intrinsically democratic. However, the latter belief was construed in contrasting ways. Marxists contended that existing democracy was a bourgeois fraud and real democracy would emerge only after a proletarian revolution, after which there would be no need of a state. For a socialist to lionize democracy as the best road to socialism was ridiculous. Democracy would come by making the state irrelevant, as Marxists believed, or by smashing the state, as anarchists believed. Democratic socialists refused to subordinate democracy and its causes to a catastrophe vision of deliverance or the demands of a left-wing dictatorship. They said socialists had to be resolutely democratic on their way to achieving socialism, and not merely on tactical grounds. Edward Bernstein made the classic case for this position in 1899 in the German Democratic Party, SPD. He rocked the SPD by doing so, and was tagged as a revisionist betrayer of Marxism. The terms... Democratic socialist and revisionist have been linked ever since. But revisionism is not another name for democratic socialism. Revisionism names the periodic necessity of adjusting the socialist idea to the world we actually live in. Democratic socialism and social democracy became slightly different things after democratic socialists insisted that democracy is the means and end. The social democrats who founded the Socialist International, in 1899, believed that socialist revolutions were inevitable wherever capitalism arose. Meanwhile, they puzzled that no socialist revolution had occurred in any advanced capitalist society. Democratic socialism and social democracy became somewhat different things because the founders were wrong about socialist revolutions occurring in all industrialized societies, or any at all. The democratic socialist vision of democratized power is more radical than the social democracies that democratic socialists create when they gain power. Sooner or later, the gap between the idea and the politics, when it grows too wide, demands a revision of the idea. In this book that just came out two days ago, Social Democracy in the Making, I analyze the European history of this logic. <clears throat> Each of these re revisionist episodes that I run through for hundreds of pages was a creative response to a stagnant orthodoxy and a blow to the conviction that socialism names something definite. Today, 
Every social democratic and workers party is struggling to rethink its mission in the face of economic globalization and backlash movements based on racism and xenophobia. In Germany, the SPD has capitulated to neoliberal capitalism and have become habituated, apparently, to its junior partner status with the Conservative Party. In Sweden, the Social Democratic Party has disavowed its historic attempt to democratize major enterprises, the Meidner Plan. But Germany has co-determined enterprises and a comprehensive welfare state. And Sweden, Denmark, and Norway have high wages, strong unions, free education, monthly stipends to undergraduates, imagine that, 400 days of paid leave when a child is born or adopted, and vibrant economies that are one-fourth publicly owned. The USA had vibrant, radical, democratic traditions before and after Europeans invented socialism. American radical Democrats began to call themselves socialists in the 1850s after German immigrants created the first formerly American socialist organizations. Very soon after the Socialist Party was founded in 1901, it was a wondrous stew of radical Democrats, neo-abolitionists, Marxists, Christians, populists, feminists, trade unionists, industrial unionists, single taxers, anarcho-syndicalists, and Fabians, both American-born and coming from every European nation and Russia. German trade unionists created a powerful socialist tradition in Milwaukee where social democracy was a culture, not just a cause. Jewish garment workers from Russia and Russian Poland created similar organizations right around here, espousing a universalistic creed in Yiddish. Rebellious tenant farmers in Oklahoma, red populists in Texas, syndicalist miners in Colorado and California, and populist socialists across the Midwest and West built a sprawling network of periodicals, summer camps, and state parties. Some of them had, had some of these outfits had papers reaching upwards of a million readers. One of them, one of my favorites, the Texas Rebel, fairly raged to its 28,000 readers that if you really believe in government of the people, by the people, and for the people, you have to be a democratic socialist. In fact, you are one. <laughs> this wondrous American socialism was destroyed in 1917 and 1919. The Socialist Party bravely opposed World War I and paid a horrific price for it. Then the meteor of world communism crashed into the Socialist Party and just blew it apart. Socialists tried afterward to build a farmer labor socialist progressive party. In Canada, they succeeded. Here, they failed. They watched Franklin Roosevelt steal 90% of their platform, and instead of saying, hey, that's our platform, let's pull him to the left, they disastrously opposed him. Even the communists figured out how, how that was stupid. Had the socialists built a farmer labor party, or had they pulled Roosevelt to the left, it would not have been possible to claim that democratic socialism is impossibly un-American. Today, the reckoning has come for missed opportunities. I was an organizer through the 1970s who started writing books about economic democracy in the 1980s. So I have yearned for this reckoning for quite some time. 
I grew up in a semi-rural, lower-class area of mid-Michigan where nobody talked about going to college or having something called a career. My parents came from similarly poor areas of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where my father had sisters, brothers, and a mother who were obviously Native American, so he moved away to see if he could pass as racially indeterminate. The most loving thing that he ever did was to claim for his children all the white privilege he could get for them. Today, my father is proudly, even aggressively, Native American. And it would not have happened without the Civil Rights Movement. But I am a child of the white lower class, having never experienced or claimed any other racial identity. Martin Luther King Jr. crashed through my world before I knew much of anything about politics or religion or anything beyond Bay County, Michigan. I squeaked into college because of sports. <clears throat> and for 25 years, I worked in various solidarity organizations, especially C-Space, and founded and led chapters of the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, DSOC, and DSA. In the 1970s, I tried to recruit Cornell West to DSOC. <clears throat> But DSOC was more old left than new left. And Cornell was not going to hang out with a bunch of old left social democrats. Most of us who were leaders in DSOC had friends who felt the same way. So in 1982, we founded DSA, fusing DSOC with the New American Movement, NAM. Michael Harrington was our leader, but now we also had leaders like Barbara Ehrenreich, Manning Marable, and Cornell West. The whole idea of DSA was to move beyond the sectarianism of the socialist past, creating a good-spirited, multi-tendency organization that fostered a culture of mutual respect and inclusion. All these years later, that dream is coming true. My new book makes an argument about the role of Christian socialism in European democratic socialism. The richest tradition of Christian socialism is the British one. It goes back to the 1840s, founded by an iconic Anglican trio, Friedrich Denison Morris, John Ludlow, Charles Kingsley. Morris argued that cooperation is the moral law of the divine order. Socialism reflects the divine order by creating a cooperative society. Ideologically, the first Christian socialists <clears throat> were in the cooperative tradition of Robert Owen, sometimes with a French inflection. Faithfully, they clashed with each other over consumer cooperatives, state financing for producer cooperatives, and cooperative syndicates. Is socialism only about the mode of production? Do we want the state to finance cooperatives? Shouldn't socialism be less divisive than capitalism? These questions thwarted the first wave of Christian socialism. The second wave in the 1880s was mostly Anglo-Catholic. Many Anglican socialists were stubbornly cooperative in the Owen and Morris mode. Some of them joined the Fabian movement after it arose in 1884. Some joined the social union reformers who came out of Oxford. Some gave highest priority to socializing land. A great many joined the Workers' Party after it arose in 1893, and some became leaders of the Guild Socialist Movement that took off in 1912. But Christian socialism had an ethical wellspring that qualified its commitment to all these ideologies. 
Christian socialists were committed to an ethic of equality, freedom, and cooperative community. They denied that a Fabian or syndical or social unionist or Marxist ideology was more binding than their ethical convictions. England had deep traditions of Christian socialism and social ethical socialism long before it acquired a workers' party or even had a Marxist tradition. In 1893, a Christian socialist labor leader, Keir Hardy, founded the Independent Labor Party, which later became the Labor Party, which compelled many socialists to make an excruciating decision. Should they stay in the radical wing of the Liberal Party or join the party of actual workers. A workers' party might be a disaster for anti-imperialism and anti-racism. Joining the ILP might destroy the anti-imperialist wing of the Liberal Party, and it might hand the government to the Tories, which, in fact, it did. Christian socialists S.G. Hobson, Charles Marson, and Conrad Knoll replied that Christian socialists had to be with the workers and then convert them to anti-imperialism, anti-racism, and anti-militarism. They were realistic about where they were starting from. Christian socialists and ethical socialists fit their ideology to their ethical convictions, not the other way around. Even those who joined the Fabian Society fought for the ethical difference whenever it arose, and it arose imperial, repeatedly over imperialism and racism. All Britons were schooled in the lore of the British Empire. A tale of mercantile colonization under the Stuarts and Cromwell, war victories against the Dutch, French, and Spanish in the 17th century, the acquisition of Eastern North America, the St. Lawrence Basin in Canada, numerous territories in the Caribbean, slave trading outposts in Africa, commercial interests in India, and Israelis' incursions of the 1870s into Egypt, India, Afghanistan, and South Africa. In the 1880s, John Hobson, a great ethical socialist, said a new kind of imperialism was emerging that had to be imposed differently than the old kind. Anti-imperialists conceived empire as a problem of power lust and military overreach cured by liberal politics. Tories were the bad party because they were just shameless imperialists. Hobson said the new imperialism was driven by fierce economic competition for new markets. He wrote about this historical turn as it occurred, publishing 10 books before he wrote his famous book, Imperialism, in 1902, contending that modern capitalism is just unsustainable without exploiting colonized markets. Hobson did not say that economics explains everything. He made moral and political arguments, and he provided sermon material for Christian socialists. Scott Holland, Charles Gore, Charles Marson, Conrad Knoll all just blasted the Boer War and the plunder of Africa, and they fought against the Fabians who touted their patriotism. British Christian socialists were strong anti-imperialists because their deepest convictions were ethical religious and they lived in the belly of the beast. Some of them made bishop anyway. Hobson was slow to acquire American readers, but after Europe plunged into World War I, W.E.B. Du Bois leaned on Hobson and the British socialists to explain what was happening in the world. In 1875, the European powers controlled one-tenth of the African continent. By 1900, they had devoured the entire continent.
Hobson said the plunder of Africa relied on the equation of color with inferiority. Du Bois said, this isn't just one factor on a list. This is the crucial thing. The, American, the European powers took an important lesson from the British and American slave trades. The pillage and rape of Africa could be called something else if black people were less than human. France sought to build a northern Africa an empire stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to the Red Sea. Germany sought colonies in Africa and Asia. Portugal renewed and expanded its historic claims to African territory. Hobson showed that Western movements for democracy and so-called progress played crucial roles in accelerating the flow of finance capital to far-off lands, thus ratcheting up the clash of empires. Democracy was supposed to be the answer to the terrible problems of inequality, exploitation, and oppression. The ship of state was supposedly launched on the great tide of democratic expansion. Yet as democracy spread, so did the rule of might regardless of which party won office. Democracy and imperialism grew together. Unless, what? In England, the Labour Party became the vehicle of the ethical socialist and Christian socialist answer. In the USA, Du Bois joined the Socialist Party, but its leader, Eugene Debs, said as little as possible about racial justice, even though he was an anti-racist. Debs had a simplistic, magical, semi-Marxist concept of socialism as the cure for all social problems. Since only socialism would abolish racism, he fixed solely on the struggle for socialism. The sophistry of that approach, as Marxist as it is, just disgusted Du Bois. Although he went on to vote several times for Debs and Norman Thomas. Du Bois did not sneer at the democratic faith of radical liberals and socialists because he shared it. He was a progressive who believed in radical democracy. But he cautioned that the seemingly paradoxical wedding of democracy and imperialism was not really puzzling. White workers were asked to share in the spoils of exploiting people of color. The chief exploiter role that formerly belonged to the merchant prince passed to the aristocratic monopoly, then passed to the capitalist class, and now belonged to the democratic nation. Du Bois said the only solution to this miserable picture was for democratic socialism to reach all the way to the poor and excluded, not stopping with white workers. The movements for socialism, union organizing, and democracy had made a beginning. The capitalist class would yield to the unions as long as it found new markets to exploit. The national bond was no longer based on something flimsy like patriotism or loyalty or ancestor worship. It was based on the wealth that creates a middle class and flows to the working class. But most of this new wealth rested on the exploitation of Asians, Africans, South Americans, West Indians. Du Bois believed that the old capitalist exploitation was fading, and it was not the reason why Germans and Britons were slaughtering each other in France. Socialism was advancing in Germany and Britain, yet both governments took for granted their right to rule and exploit non-white peoples. World War I was about which group of white nations would do so. Du Bois put it plainly. <clears throat> If the movements for liberalism and unionism and 
anti-imperialism and socialism were going to create a decent world, they had to struggle for it everywhere. Quote, we must go further. We must extend the democratic ideal to the yellow, brown, and black peoples, unquote. Du Bois implored that democracy is distinctly powerful and transformative. First, the movements for democratic socialism had to win power wherever they existed. Then they had to fulfill the universalism of their creed. Otherwise, otherwise, democratic socialism was the worst hypocrisy of them all. Du Bois believed that for the rest of his life. The universality of the socialist idea was not a problem for him. The problem was the lack of it. I wrote this last book during the period that Bernie Sanders first ran for president. <clears throat> I spent a lot of time that year talking to reporters about how Bernie conceives democratic socialism and why he's won so much support. It was a mystery to these reporters. It was counterintuitive to everything they assumed about American politics. Day after day, he conveyed his gut rage that the system is rigged to siphon most of the wealth to exceedingly rich people. I loved him for it, even as I regretted his, shall we say, limitations. <laughs> Bernie sings in one key only, and he never broke through to African-American voters, which caused a lot of us to regret that he never had to try until he ran for president. But his achievement in his previous run is already historic. It changed the discussion in the Democratic Party. It put AOC on her path to Congress. In Bernie's candidacy, the Democratic Party belatedly reckoned with its tepid conformity to neoliberalism and the donor class. This time, I am waiting for Stacey Abrams to make a decision. But Bernie exemplifies stubborn, ethical, democratic, socialist radicalism. He doesn't conduct a poll to find out what he believes. He doesn't have to decide from week to week who he's going to be. He demonstrates the power of holding to simple, ethical, socialist values with conviction. In this respect, he is very similar to the leading British socialist of the 20th century, R.H. Tawney, albeit with some of the same limitations. Tawney expounded three basic principles. All human beings possess God-given equal worth and dignity. Socialism is moral and democratic, and freedom and equality go together, for inequality curtails freedom. Equality is the antidote to privilege, which is a function of interrelated social and economic power, and democratizing power is the antidote to tyranny, which is a function of the distribution of power. The goal is for human freedom and fellowship to flourish by democratizing economic and social power. Tawney was tireless in the Bernie Sanders fashion, constantly repeating that a good society re respects people for what they are, not for what they own. It provides for all children what parents want for their children. Tawney was a Christian socialist. His best friend was a famous theologian, William Temple. But he chafed at the label because he was pluralistic about religion and not about socialism. <laughs> for Tawney, as for Du Bois, socialism was universal. Everybody should be a socialist. 
A great deal of the literature on Christian socialism dismisses it as ethical idealism, often with a quote from Marx or Reinhold Niebuhr. I am more impressed by stubborn ethical conviction because it is the crucial thing. And in many contexts, it's the only alternative to despair or selling out or giving up. That's the main trope running through my two books on the black social gospel. There is no black social gospel without that very thing. The struggle for economic democracy and inclusion has been left to stubborn types who learn from the history and failures of democratic socialism. Thank you, friends. else give you a conversation on social democracy with that much energy and joy and power? Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much. Um, Miguel, Miguel es mi hermano, um, my colleague, uh, a badass, resurrecting a badass Christianity. Miguel de la Torre. Thank you. Buenas noches. White America has been bamboozled in believing the Christian myth that they are superior. This myth is older than the Republic, because prior to 1670, there was little difference in the social location of poor white indented servant and black slaves. They worked in the same area, lived together, intermarry. Then in 1676, we had the Bacon Rebellion in Jamestown, in where whites and blacks joined hands against the aristocrats of the time, what today we might call the 1%. And together, they almost brought Virginia to its knees, if not for the British army coming and quenching that rebellion. Black and white Together, their blood flowed through the streets of Jamestown, becoming a band of brothers and sisters, one people against the top 1%, what we would call that today. The aristocrats realized the danger of what would happen if the poor were to join forces. So they created what we know today to be white privilege. They passed the Virginia Slave Codes that took the little bit that black slaves had and gave it to poor whites. So no matter how horrible life may be if you're white, at least I'm not black. And in the creation of that white privilege, you began a strategy of division that continues to this day. Now, now let me pause for a second and, and, and define some words I'm using. When I say white, as in the white nationalist Christianity, as in white privilege, I am not talking about skin pigmentation, okay? There are many people of color who are white 
Clarence Thomas comes to mind. Marco Rubio comes to mind. They are ontologically white. In other words, they support, they sustain, and they maintain what white privilege maintains and sustains. Just like there are people with white skin pigmentation who stand in solidarity with the oppressed of the world. So when I'm talking about white, please, please don't make the mistake of thinking that I am only talking about skin pigmentation. White people, now I'm, I'm talking about skin pigmentation, white people, in this case skin pigmentation, are also oppressed, for they lose their humanity due to their complicity in stealing the humanities of those who fall short of their whiteness. And as the old liberationist maxim says, liberation is for the oppressed and for the oppressor, for the one who is the oppressed and for the one who is privileged and benefits due to that oppression. My chair of my dissertation committee, John Raines, always would say that America likes to dream upward but blame downward. And this is the creation of this myth. Because we, the, the so-called forgotten American who is struggling to pay the rent, who has two or three jobs to try to stay afloat, hears me talking and saying, what white privilege? I, I, I'm barely living from, from day to day. So rather than them looking at the causes of the economically downward spiral, those who benefit from the economic structure tells them, it's those damn Mexicans trying to take a job. They're the ones who are to blame. Hence, we dream upward. My dream as a right American is to be among the 1%. If I work hard, if I keep my nose to the grindstone, I too can be among the rich in this nation. If it wasn't for those welfare queens who are just sucking the system and keeping me down, I could be rich. I dream upward, I blame downward. Hence, I probably will never look at the cause of my economic distress because I want to join them one day even though a lot of economic statistics show that if you die in a certain economic bracket, you'll, I mean, if, you, if you're born into a certain economic bracket, you'll probably die in that same bracket. We don't have mobility. So, skin folk who are benefiting from these economic structure have been redirecting the anger downward. So we are now a nation in drunk and xenophobic madness that vilifies immigrants. And because it is those immigrants' fault that I'm not rich, my anger and hostility is visited upon them. I have lived in this country now for 60 years. I am more afraid now, as a Latino man, than I've ever been living in this country. The hate crimes are at 
unacceptable levels. And the reason I am afraid is because those who are also poor see me as the cause of their poverty because I'm taking their jobs. See, for white privilege to be maintained, white ignorance must be sustained. The plunder that is enjoyed by the rich must be politically legitimized and spiritually justified. So, white Poor whites are played for pledge privileges by the 1% who controls 39% of the wealth, who could care less about the downward spiraling middle class. In this respect, I do believe in colorblindness and that neoliberal is colorblind. Neoliberal could care less who's poor as long as a profit could be made off of them. And no better proof is there than the 2017 tax cut, which gorged $5.3 billion from those earning less than $50,000 a year to give $5.8 billion of tax cuts to those earning a million dollars or more a year. But rather than looking at this reverse Robin Hood, of shifting from the poor to give to the rich, we are told that the problem are people of color who are taking advantage of the social services that this generous country has to offer. Since the Great, Re the great Recession of 08, 1% has recaptured 93% of all income gains. So we are getting poorer and poorer. Now this is not something new, but, but, but we seem to forget this. In order to spiritually justify this ethical travesty, we have constructed a white nationalist Christianity where WWJD has become MAGA. White Christian nationalists, peddled by political hacks with names like Falwell and Graham and Perkins and Dobson, are providing the morphine drip, which is drugging white Christians into embracing what James Cone some 60 years ago called satanic white Christianity. Now, now, Trump is not an aberration. There will one day be a 46, maybe in two years. You know I'm hopeless, so I would say maybe in six years. <laughs> but the white Christianity which brought us a 45, we have never dealt with that Christianity. And even if 46 is a liberal and a person of color and, and economically a social democrat, and, 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 and because we never dealt with why we had a 45, we will have another 45, which this time will be smarter and more deadly. Uh -oh. 
and yet Christian white churches are advancing doctrinal contortions which will make an expert of the Kama Sutra blush. Right Christianity manifests itself whenever it steals and rapes the dignity of humans. Humans because they have a dark skin pigmentation bodies. Humans who are occupying Muslim and Jewish bodies. Humans who are occupying undocumented bodies. Humans who are occupying trans bodies. White Christianity can have life and life abundantly because it crucifies these bodies on crosses of racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, and transphobia. All who denies the humanity of others, regardless of how liberal they sound, regardless of how woke they are, regardless if they dated a person of color in college, <laughs> regardless of having an Asian grandchild, or who denies the humanity of others of worshiping at the altar of right Christianity. Or, And all who worship Trump's golden calf have lost all moral authority to say anything about anything concerning justice or morality or ethics. In this book I just published, uh, Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting the Badass Christianity, which is really nothing but a 100-page rant. <laughs> I argue that right Christianity is beyond reform. It cannot be saved. It cannot be rehabilitated. Instead, we need to dig the graves and bury it as quickly as possible. We must hasten the death of white Christianity if there is to be any, and there's that word, hope for a future. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Why am I so damn angry? First of all, our children are being whipped from mother's arms and placed in cages. Every four days, five brown bodies perish while crossing the desert. Gonyo, why aren't you so damn angry? We should be enraged at the human rights violations that are occurring in our country this day. But here's the thing. If white Christians can label me angry, I'm just another angry Latino, then everything I say can be dismissed. And as long as I could be dismissed as being angry, we don't have to deal with any of these things that I am speaking of. See, see, I am supposed to approach those who have the boot of white supremacy on my neck and say, excuse me, 
I don't mean to bother you, but, but I'm wondering if we could discuss this unfortunate situation of your boot being upon my neck. I'm wondering if it could be moved, and, and if it's not convenient for you at this time, maybe we could pick a date where we could have a conversation and where we could explore this in greater detail. In other words, I must speak a certain way to be heard. After the election, one of my white colleagues told me that how do I reach people who voted for Trump in a way that doesn't turn them off? And I'm like, why is that my job? But that is what is expected if I'm going to be heard. And frankly, I don't need to be heard that much. <laughs> we need to resurrect what I'm calling a badass Christianity. And that begins when I refuse to self-mutilate myself. In Acts 15, there's a story of the leaders of the church who had all these foreigners joining the church, and they said, you know, they need to first become Jews before they could become Christians. So they first need to be circumcised, then they could become Christians. Not much has changed because for me to be a Christian scholar, I first must become white, then I could become a Christian scholar. I must first learn white theology. I must first learn white ecclesiology. I must first learn white philosophy. And then when I mastered that, I am given a PhD while my white colleagues never have to read any works by people of color, and yet they are considered to be academically rigorous. Back then, in Acts, they had to circumcise the foreskin. Today I'm being asked to circumcise my culture. It's a death-dealing, soul-crushing cut that I am not willing to do. Any type of badass Christianity means that I see the divine through the symbols of my own culture. Hence, as a boy from the Caribbean, Elegua is very important to me. And if you read anything that I've written, the trickster is always there. Badass Christianity is when Jesus enters the temples and overturns the table, a decolonizing act designed to disrupt neoliberalism. Badass Christianity is radical solidarity to those who are dehumanized by right Christianity. I stand with undocumented immigrants, and people say, well, of course you do. You're a Latino. Big deal. I also stand with my queer brothers and sisters, even though I'm a cisgender male. And I stand with them because I don't have a dog in that fight. So when they, they can't dismiss me by saying, oh, well, you're gay, so of course you stand. No. 
I stand with them because it's an issue of justice, it's an issue of dehumanization, it's an issue of oppression, and I have no other choice but to stand in solidarity with the oppressed. So if I'm going to stand in solidarity with those with whom I don't have a dog in that fight, everyone in this room needs to be standing with undocumented immigrants, whether you're an immigrant or not. Only then are we practicing a badass Christianity. My academic intellectual mentor, Jose Mati, I'm right now working on three volumes of his philosophy, said it best. Nuestro, platano, nuestro vino de plátano y si sale agrio, Sigue siendo nuestro vino. For those who have yet mastered the language of the angels, I'll allow me to translate for you. <laughs> we shall make our, our wine out of plantains. And even if it comes out sour, it is still our wine. I will make my badass Christianity out of my own cultural symbols. And it doesn't matter if it tastes bad or it comes out wrong, it's still mine. And because it's mine, it has value, it has purpose, and it has meaning to me. That means for me, I'm only talking about me right now, it might resonate with some of you, but for me, to be a Christian means I have to reject white theology, white ethics, and white philosophy. And I reject it because they were created to make sure that I would never be part of the discourse. They were created to justify white supremacy. They were created to basically ensure that I would have no voice. And not only must I reject that, I must reject laws written by the 1% that are written to maintain control over me. Yeah. Th th this is scary stuff because that means I'm not bound to laws that have been written to keep me silenced. I, I always say I have to go to the police department to get a permit from the police department to protest the police department for police brutality. You see, I'm allowed to protest as long as I do it in the space that was created where I can protest that makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. This is why this badass Christianity has what I call an ethics para jorel. And I mentioned it before, so I'll mention it again. First of all, for those who know Spanish, I apologize. You should never use that kind of word, especially in the church of God. <laughs> but for those of you, again, who don't speak Spanish, joder is a certain word that you never use in polite conversation. It's similar to a certain four-letter word that begins with F and ends with K. And what I'm arguing is that a badass Christianity is, an, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a praxis that constantly is screwing with the structures. You see, when I stand before the vastness of neoliberalism, where it is hopeless, where I probably will not win, 
where the structures are rigged to make sure I fail. Following the rules only ensures my failure. I must screw with the systems. And maybe when I do, new opportunities may arise that would never have arisen if I didn't overturn those tables. That's the trickster. That's my elegoire. This badass Christianity is a Christianity that calls out the bullshit of our political leaders and just says it the way it is regardless of the course. Now, besides being a Roman Catholic and a Santero, I'm also a Southern Baptist. <laughs> so on that last identity, spiritual identity, I would do what I used to do when I preached at church and then do an altar call. So with every head to bow, and as Ms. Ernestine begins to play, just as I am on the, on the organ, <laughs> I want to call you to a, I want to call you to a commitment. This is a come to Jesus moment. If we leave this revolutionary conference and just say to ourselves, oh, that was such a nice conference. Oh, it really warmed my heart. I got to see so many friends I haven't seen in a long time. I wonder who the speaker's gonna be next year. We lost the purpose and the meaning of this conference. The purpose and the meaning of this conference is for you to go back to your home churches and your communities and start screwing with the systems and start overturning the tables and start living your faith, whatever that faith is. I'm only talking about badass Christianity because that's my own faith tradition, but I, I, I would love to know what a badass Islam or a badass Judaism would look like. But whatever that is, those are my brothers and sisters, and I want to be in conversation with them. Thank you very much for your time. Exciting, isn't it? Um, thank you so much, Miguel. Muchísimas gracias. Don't you just want to be a badass Christian? Even the Muslims in the room, don't you just want? Don't you, don't you feel like you might want to be a badass Christian at this moment? Um, we're going to have a little bit of conversation with Miguel and Gary, and Rob's going to move that for me. Thank you. Is this you, buddy? Yeah. So, let's have a couple questions from you. Um, yes. Good evening. This is for Professor Del Torre. Can you say a bit more about the publisher of your latest book and who it is you think you and they would want to read this book? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Interesting enough, it was Erdman Press, which is a very conservative press. Um, they, about two years ago, I wrote this little 600-word essay 
called um, The Death of Christianity, and it literally went viral. They read it, they contacted me and said, we want to make this into a book. And I said, okay, who is, what, what press is this again? They go, no, no, really, we want to do this. I go, okay, fine. Um, I want to call it Badass Christianity. They go, no problem. I go, okay. So they published it. And, and, and what is exciting is they publish it to reach their audience, which is predominantly white scholars or, or, or white churches. The Reformed Church, specifically, the Reformed Church Press. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating the way the Lord works in, in, in funny ways, or the Wild works in funny ways, whichever yes, you want to. Yes, because you got wanna... all those little those <laughs> folks. You got guys, you got century, <laughs> Baptistness. It's wonderful. Thank you for that. Right here? Okay, whoops, over here. Okay, and then we'll come back. Thanks. Uh, Lori Stone Sertotsky is online with a question for Dr. Dorian. What are the first three steps that need to occur to set, up, set us on a path that in 400 years will lead most Americans to conclude capitalism was as abhorrent in the 2000s as we now understand chattel slavery to be today? Thank you. Gary? <laughs> Thanks, Lori. Um, you know, I don't think it quite happens that way. Um, I spent the whole 1980s and, 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 def, and, and definitely the entire 1990s giving a talk uh, against Tina. You remember Tina? There is no alternative, right? Um, and uh, the, the surge, the, just the culture, everything was going in the direction of this sort of neoliberal global thing that got built. Um, that had even, you know, some of us can remember, God, you're, you're, it's, it's the mid-1990s, you're checking your stock options. Uh, there's just a, there's a sense of, of uh, this thing is just so much bigger uh, than we are and has sort of taken over the world and is recreating the entire world and its image in a way that's just leaving no other value at all. The only value is, you know, shareholder value. And people running the, our firms... Uh, will tell you, they still will, of course, uh, that they, they don't owe anything to anybody except their shareholders to maximize, to, you know, increase their, the, the value. Um, and you can give a witness. You know, I have. I've written a bunch of books on economic democracy. Made it all, you know, it was very important to me to say there are alternatives, right? This isn't just the only possibility. Um, but um, I... I feel the difference at this moment we're in now from what most of my career has been on, on just this, this issue, uh, the way you put it, uh, that this is all turning around. We've got, you know, DSA is exploding now because the evidence is in uh, for what happened in the 1990s, for the kind of democratic administration we had in the 1990s, just what it was that they considered realistic and the kind of, cut, the kind of deals they cut and what it is that you can't argue about. Um, the evidence is in now about, uh, to, to millions of people about uh, what has come of that. And so now we're, we're riding something, we're in something that you can't, you can't gin up. Um, you know, it's, it's a matter now of, you know, being in solidarity and build, building, building organizations and structures that are suitable to this time. Uh, that, this is why I sort of made the reference to DSA. You know, I've been in it forever. Uh, but this was, this was pretty much just a witness outfit. Uh, people just kind of hanging in there and continuing to kind of make, make the case. 
Uh, the capitalism is not good for us, and it's not good for the planet, and it's, it's cut a deal with everything that we sh you know, should be uh, very suspicious of at the very least. Um, and now you don't... I, I go all kinds of places now. I don't even have to make that argument anymore. That's just a given. It's, now it's just, just what? Um, but, then that, but then that's an organizing issue. You know. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Okay, and then over here. Okay. Hey, I'm Paul Devlin. Um, I have the advantage of being a white man who can disrupt from within. So my anger is often turned in to the organizations that make those challenges. And I applaud Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez for working within the system, running as a Democrat, winning as a Democrat, to give a resurgence to the DSA. But I was fascinated by Dr. De La Torre's comment about blame down, aspire up. And sometimes I feel as if the DSA is trying to invert that conversation and just blame up. And so what I'm trying to figure out is how do I express my anger in more positive terms and say aspire up and bring up or find a way to not just invert the conversation and just try to turn the blame, but try to bring it more aspirational to everybody. So either one of you could talk about that. You have an advantage that you could speak in circles that I can never speak in. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, on issues of, of women's rights, okay, I could speak among men about sexism in a way that I might be heard where women may not be. Not that I'm smarter or better or could be a spokesperson for women, but I have access to a group of people that would dismiss women as just being angry. So my job in that case is to have that kind of conversation, okay? Um, your job is to speak to other white people about why you are angry and why this has to change. My job is to help those uh, for my own community to become more radicalized, okay? Um, together, we might move the ball forward a little bit. But I want to be clear, not all of us have the same responsibilities and the same jobs or speak to the same audience. So I want you, know, I want you to do what you need to do, and I'll do what I need to do. Um, and, at and at times, even as, as James Cone writes in his book on uh, Malcolm and, and Martin, you had two very different approaches, but both were needed for the cause. And just a really quick tag on to what Miguel is saying as we go to the other question. I also think, Paul, you, you get to create your own metaphor in there about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Like if Miguel's saying, you know, rise up and blame down, or you, what is, the, what is that directionality that you're trying to describe for your people that resonates for your people mm -hmm. from your heart? That's what I would add. Uh, so this is a question for Miguel. Um, <clears throat> I have a brother who's a Trump supporter, so I've had to learn how to make peace with him. It's turned out my Christianity, like, we make peace because we both have this in common. And uh, I guess the question is about the trickster, because I, I kind of see this era that we have the internet can change people's opinions in a day. You know, there's such a, there's, there's never been a time where a radical change can really flip millions of people's perspectives very quickly. Um, and I also kind of see that this white Christian thing that's going on is a sign that, that uh, 
that more change is available and even positive change because there's just, they're not moored on that side. There's no mooring on the Christian right. It's just, it's all crazy. It's like, it's a vulnerable part. So I feel very positive about it. But I love the idea that with the trickster mentality, that you can come in and disrupt with humor and disrupt. And I kind of see middle. I like middle. I love Jackie's preaching because it comes from a, a place of humor. What would this trickster, if you could paint the positive picture of where, like, middle as a church or we as individuals could trickster our way into this radical change that you believe could happen, what would that look like? Yeah, it's... I, I could give you some examples. You know, I remember once I was detained by the Border Patrol, and it was noon, and there was a group of us, so I said, oh, it's time for the Sunday Mass. Padre, Santo, And I started doing the Mass right then and there, you know, and I, and I was channeling um, Oscar Romero because something happened to him. I saw the movie. So I just repeated what he did, and the Border Patrol agents all freaked out. They didn't know what to do. That's playing the trickster. That's reminding them. I mean, they have all the power. They have the guns. They're the ones who are detaining us. But how do I subvert their power? Um, and, and, and this is constantly... Um, it just it becomes a way of life, and, and this is not something, I want to be very clear, this is not something new I invented. Uh, the poor and the, and, and the oppressed have always played tricksters. In the black community, you have Bear Rabbit and, and, Bear, and Bear Bear. In, in, in the Cuban community, we have Pepito. You know, oppressed people have always had trickster images. And I'm trying to channel what we've always went to as a people. Um, and, and, and play those, that humor. And you said humor is, 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 is one of the best ways, or playing dumb sometimes is just as, as important. And, and have my not understanding force people to try to explain what can never be explained in, in, in any logical way. Do you guys know The Signifying Monkey, Skip Gates' book? About, okay. Yes? No? Okay. So you want to read that. Skip Gates' book, The Signifying Monkey, or even if you Google liminality and dig deep down enough in it, you're going to find these trickster references. Yeah. Um, yes. So, of course, thank you, Dr. De La Torre. So, here's what I wanted to ask. Speaking of Elegua, thank you for bringing him up. <laughs> what about the, um, how else can we connect, those of us who connect more to Elegua, and more to our Christianity from a heritage perspective, because that's my heritage, it's how I was raised, definitely Baptist. Mm -hmm. um, how can we connect more to that through Elegua, through Oya, through Yemite? I mean, do you have other ideas and images? Because I just found it so compelling, and I'd love to hear your wisdom. Thank you. Yeah. I find that in Eurocentric Christianity, you're either a Methodist or a Presbyterian. You can't be both. You know, either one thing or another. We Caribbean boys and girls, you know, those of us in the Caribbean, our families have always held different traditions at the same times, even though they have been contradictory. Um, so my thinking is when Paul makes the wrong turn, instead of going right, he goes left and ends up in Greece, and all of a sudden we have all these concepts in Christianity like a soul, which isn't Hebrew or biblical or anything like that, but he imports these Greek thinking into Christianity. What's the difference between him doing that and me using Elegua? You know, 
if he would have made a right instead of a left, we would have had Hindu symbols by which we understand Christianity instead of Greek symbols. So, so for me, understanding the divine, I need to understand the divine through my own culture, through my own symbols. And we all have come from different cultures, and, and whatever that culture is, what's the richness of that culture that helps you better understand the divine? And for me, I, you know, like I said, I am a child of Elegua, so that's very important to me, you know. Um, so you're saying, you know, make your own collard grains, or I don't know. You're saying use, use what's inside your culture to yeah. enrich your spirituality. Right. And, to, and to help your other people access it. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I, you know, I mean, I love Greek philosophy, but I'm not Greek, so. Yeah. Okay, here, sir, Sandrine, and then back, oh my God, to Harold. Mm -hmm. Our Harold has a question. That could be scary. So my question is on capitalism and um, just wondering if we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater because it's been a system of, of economics that has led to significant wealth creation. And it wasn't always this unbridled capitalism that we're seeing right now that has led to this significant concentration of wealth in the top 1%, you know, until the 70s, like you said, when, it began, when people began to focus on maximizing shareholder value. And so I'm just wondering, you know, by throwing capitalism out and just saying that it has no place, do we push it a little too far and deny the creativity that comes from that economic system? And is that, you know, is that necessarily the right way to go? Just asking that. Thank you. Um, well, firstly, this is why I sort of pluralized my subject right away, right? Uh, just to sort of establish that socialism has never been just one thing, uh, and really neither is capitalism. Uh, and of course, to even use these terms in any kind of ideal type way, even if that's what you want to do, it, it never describes what's actually in the world, right? So uh, we have, even in this country, uh, though we've been holding off, and that was my point there, was just to say that in Europe they've got way more parts of the system that are just socialist. I mean, just, they didn't come from anywhere else. They came from socialist movements. You know, Medicare and covering everyone, taking care of everyone, making sure that nobody is starving or freezing. Like, these are the socialist movements that, uh, that injected these parts uh, in, into, you know, uh, modern societies. And it's the case here. And so there's always sort of this balance of, of how much of one kind of argument uh, than the other. Even to say that there's, there are just two just sort of models about what a good society would be. That is sort of what I was going for there as well, to say, of course these are ideal types. It's always going to be a mixture, a push and pull uh, between them. Uh, so that's just, that's our reality anyway. We're never, and there's just not in play uh, that we're going to actually get rid of capitalism or that we could create, you know, something, some kind of pure socialism. I don't know what that is anyway. Um, and, there, and the more factors you put into this, the more you just have to depreciate sort of the, the multiplicity of it. It could be that that's, that's too abstract a way, though, of even coming at what is your, was your question, if that's what it is. Because, you know, I'll, I'll admit, um, 
My previous book was titled Breaking White Supremacy, and the one before that was titled The New Abolition. And that's pretty much all I've done for the last five years, uh, is talk on those topics, especially to church groups. It's only this week I'm going heading back to my democratic socialist argument. I mean, I've been making this argument my whole career, but I'm only now in it when what is this, it's such a different moment than it ever was before. Uh, now going back to this to the arguments about uh, economic democracy and you know um, what it means to try to imagine a better world uh, along that line. I do think that all social justice movements have got some economic justice component in them and that which can be unif uh, kind of unifying element for um, all of them. Um, Cornell and I, we've had, you know, we've believed that our whole careers. I mean, everything we've written has sort of has come out of that that sensibility, but quite how you pull it off, that's, um, that's a whole different issue, and I, I'm not sure at all that I got it right uh, today. I'm just, I'm just trying something I'm again I'm just trying here. it out. Yeah. <clears throat> but, Thank and, you. And on the way to Sandrine's question, just, <clears throat> Gary, yeah. yes, no. What? Is it, is it also true, though, that the work you've been doing on dismantling white supremacy and the work you've been doing on abolitionism and this moment don't they tie together that intersectional space where what's wrong with America is white supremacy and what's wrong with America is a gigantic gap between the rich and the poor? Absolutely. Okay. So that, thank you, sir. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. So those things are connected. All right. Good afternoon. My name is Sandrine. I have a question for both because I feel like your subjects intertwine each other. Going into the democratic socialism, I am thinking of a world of capitalism in the way that I understand it, that we need a small player so that the big guys could feel more important. So when we go into third world nation, which I'm from, that small guy is the third world nation, yes? And then Miguel, you mentioned that a system that is created to keep the needy needing. So how do we dismantle that in a sense that we go to what Gary is suggesting, having an unifying economy mm. without driving the big guy insane so that we can all, all be economically equal and mentally equal. <laughs> You know, how do you do that? These questions for both Miguel and yeah. Gary. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Firstly, yeah, this is one of those just perennial uh, quandaries, right? And I do believe in the principle of subsidiarity that you should you should solve any problem you can at the at the most grassroots level possible. Anything the, the further down, decentralized and human scale, down here that you can get your arms around and have face-to-face -face encounter, I'm always for that at whatever level um, that can happen. Um, but, uh, of course, you know, you can just feel what's coming here, right? Uh, that these problems are so, so, so immense, and they are, in fact, structural. They're, the whole point of talking about economic justice is to say that there are sort of structural components to any sort of economic justice strategy that, in fact, scale up, and that you only get your arms around a certain kind of problem as you f find ways of scaling up. 
I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of community organizing. I've done a lot of it. I was a community organizer all through the 70s, and I talk about community organizing all over the country and try to get churches involved in it. And um, so I've, I've devoted much of my life uh, to that work. I believe in it passionately. And community organizing is just very, I mean, it has really serious problems in just this area. It, it burns people out and has trouble scaling up, and it can only handle certain kinds of problems. It does certain kinds of work better than anything else, I believe, but it also is limited by those very uh, strengths. So we're always sort of in this um, situation, I think, in, 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 uh, in, in social justice politics or in trying to get churches involved in it where uh, it, it is a both-and. I, I can't just live in one place or the other because it really is both. I enjoy my brother, Dr. Darwin, because I agree with so much of everything he says, and, and, and I'm with him 100%. But I think there's a certain <coughs> liberation in my hopelessness because I realize that getting to that point will never depend on me and I'll probably never get there anyway. So what I instead am doing is I'm doing everything that was said, the community organizing, the working with the people, the, the trying to bring about change, even if I'm going to fail in doing it. Because it doesn't depend on me. And I do it not because I think I'm going to win. I do it because I have no other choice. It's what defines my faith and what defines my humanity. So while I know I come at this as very different from a lot of people, we usually, you know, the goal is the same. We want to go at, we want to get to the same point. I'm just doing, I'm just trying to survive. I, I just want my kids not to be in cages. I mean, if I could just get to that, I'll be very happy, you know. So, so it's harder for me to think of the global when, 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 when this is happening right now. If that makes sense. And I'm not trying to cop out of the, uh, giving an answer. I'm just saying that I'm in the struggle knowing that I'll probably lose. And maybe if I could get enough people to the point where we have nothing else to lose, maybe then we'll be more revolutionary. That, that'll preach. Our last question. Hi, fellow DSA member. Um, we recently just read the ABCs of Socialism, and in pamphlet B on the state and capitalism, Cheber makes um, a compelling argument that even if you get somebody like AOC into office, where they get around, bypass the donor class, and small um, donations gets past the lobbying problem, the most resilient barrier to um, the state being funded is its reliance on taxation, which makes... Um, the Green New Deal and such ambitious projects um, really vulnerable to capitalist retaliation. And I, I guess I would like to hear your thoughts about that, you know, um, barring modern monetary theory that posits we could just print more money to pay for things, and not everyone's a monetary sovereign. Greece couldn't do that. Um, right. Central planning was a model at one time. What do you think about this vulnerability that these things have to be funded through taxation? Um, thank you. Um, there, uh, my, my, my initial framing thing about, you know, the, the varieties here, almost every socialist tradition historically and that still exists today has got somewhere in its DNA 
the, the vision, the fantasy, the dream, the whatever, the eschatology, that when we really get to some, to, to what, you know what it is we're talking about? We won't need a state, right? The state is out of it. Uh, and so the, the latecomer in socialism is actually the idea of state socialism. So many people think, oh, that's what it is. It's just the government owning everything. But actually, within the, within the DNA of virtually all these movements, you always have this, for just the reason you're going for here, uh, why it is that you don't want to end up, that the goal isn't to end up becoming, you know, being dependent on a state or anything like that, because the state itself isn't something you can trust. The state's always going to just shore up whatever you've got, whatever the powerful uh, want. And so you can try to make the state, you know, gentler, nicer, more progressive and the like, but really uh, we should want something beyond that. And virtually all socialist traditions said that except the Fabian tradition. I mean, they were the, the, the great exception, and of course, look what a great success they made uh, of it. Created welfare state in England and uh, in many places. So, um, I, 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 that's part of it. It's, like, it's equivalent to what eschatology uh, is, in, is in Christianity, you know, here but not yet. Uh, but, but meanwhile, here you are. Uh, you're a living here. Um, and I am... Uh, I just confess, I am political. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you got to deal with the politics that, of, of your time. Uh, work in uh, existing uh, political structures, uh, justice movements and the like. When I first joined DSOC, yes, I was one of those young people who just kind of grind my teeth saying, are you, why, we're, we're just working for these liberal Democrats? When do we get to talk about economic democracy, right? How is this moving the needle when we're just working to elect some liberal Democrats? And the old timers always used to say, let me tell you when it, what it was like to be trying to uh, run Norman Thomas for president every year and get 2% of the vote. That was, and just knowing you're getting nowhere, that, that all these pro programs are going to expand. Things get better during periods of liberal resurgence, and that means working within whatever structures you've got, wherever you are, including this country, where the structures are very much against us. So um, because people suffer because of politics, because people suffer because of the lack of coverage for pre-existing conditions or whatever a government program it is you're talking about, uh, yes, I do feel morally obligated to get as much as I can out of that because that's, that's the work that, you know, is going to be there for, you know, my lifetime. Thank you, Gary, and thank you, everyone. Uh, Let's give a hand to Miguel and Gary.